Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Hi, everybody, and welcome. You're exactly right, guys. I'm not sure anybody's going to turn down a three-day weekend, given that we've had a 42-day work week already this week. Welcome, everybody, to CNBC and Fast Money and our continued coverage of the markets in turmoil. Well, another day, and there is more green on the screen. You're going to hear a lot of stats like this. Markets best week since 1974 or 1938. There's your big changes. Dow up 12%, S&P up 12%, NASDAQ up 10%. But let's be honest. The markets are still down big time this year, so cold comfort for investors who may have gotten in toward the end of last year. We're going to dissect all of that. One big theme today is the Federal Reserve effectively riding to the rescue of the bond market and even the ETF bond market. Look at the HYG, something we've been highlighting for really going on more than a month now, up 7% as well as the Fed, as it says there goes all in. And we are all in with a great lineup for you again tonight. We have got Guy, we have got Tim, we've got Karen, and we have got Steve Grosso. It is going to be a big hour. We've got Paul McCulley coming up. and We'll talk about rare earth mineral supply chains. But I want to get back to the Fed, Steve Grasso, because the Federal Reserve, and I know it's very difficult for the audience out there that is not doing this every day to keep track of the alphabet soup of acronyms the Federal Reserve came in today with another $2 trillion program. Did they effectively bail out a big part of the ETF market? Yeah, I think they did. So the Fed has always uh, sort of said, frowned down upon buying uh, risky assets or junk bonds. Today, they said they're going to be buying junk bonds. They're going to be buying collateralized mortgage obligations. They're going to be buying CMBSs. They're buying anything that was in danger of failing. So, Brian, on the show, we always talk about the HYG. just mentioned it. We use that as the risk barometer. The risk barometer jumped today. It told everyone that the market and everything is not going to be allowed to fail. So in 08, 09, it was too big to fail. Now it's no one will be allowed to fail. So I'm not saying we're completely out of the woods. But it's extremely difficult to sell the market in the next 30 days to the next 60 days because nothing is going to fail. Balance sheets don't matter. Earnings don't matter. The Fed will be buying everything. If you're in poor shape, you're being bailed out. If you're in good shape, you're going to be putting up acceptable numbers. Your stock will rally. So it's not really uh, a Pollyannish view. It's just really realistic near term it's impossible to buy anything that will fail bankruptcies no one's thinking about that right now will they happen maybe but right now it's about bailouts and about stocks that are performing and it's about virus counts death counts so i don't want to belittle that no we never would guy dami the numbers are staggering when you look at what the fed has announced already you multiply that <clears throat> by possible leverage from the treasury Okay, we could easily get to 10 trillion with a T. Maybe we need it. I have no idea, but I do know this. To Steve's point, we have never seen a Fed that is, this makes the Great Recession and financial crisis look small by comparison. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Obviously, a lot of people spoke about it today. I mean, I find it not ironic that on the day or the day after Bernie Sanders uh, gives up his run for presidency that we've gone basically Bernie Sanders. I mean, we've effectively now privatized wins. We socialized losses. And there's this belief, and maybe rightly so, that the Fed has our back and they'll buy everything. I mean, that in and of itself is extraordinarily problematic. I mean, with that said, I, I hear what Steve's saying. I think to a certain extent, the four of us on the show tonight have said similar things. I think Tim's probably been the most bullish. I know Steve has been saying this 2790 level is within reach for a while. I've been saying it as well. I know Karen's been absolutely optimistic. And here we are, Not again, not ironic that we close at the level that a lot of us have flagged in a long time. You know, in terms of what the market, if you take the Fed out of the equation, if, if the market on a valuation basis is probably exactly where we were at all-time highs, if you take what probably would have been $160 worth of earnings and said it's probably closer to 130 although I think a lot of people think it's less than that, and something that Scott Minard has said still resonates in my head, you know, he has brought up that 1,700 level in the S&P a number of times. I'm not saying we're getting there, and maybe he looks back and says, yeah. now with the Fed in the game, there's no way we get there. But, I mean, it's something that still sort of sticks in the back of my mind. So, you know, look, here we are. I think the market is on better footing, but for probably the wrong reasons. And, Tim, listen, you know it. You, we're all active on social media for, for some reason. Anyway, all the people are coming out saying, oh, all the negative people <laughs> on CNBC have been wrong, and look at the market soaring, and, and they must be fools. Here's the real The market could keep going up. I have no idea because the Fed programs could do it, Tim, but, but I, I'm sure you, you will agree with this, I hope, and if you don't, let me know, that we've got to be very careful here. A couple days where the market bounces in a terrible market does not mean the all-clear signal has sounded, does it? No, but fundamentals are, are, are not really playing to the fore here. And so, um, look, my, my view is that the pain trade has been higher uh, and, and could go higher. And today, the, fa the Fed ripped the, the face off of shorts. Uh, a surprise pledge to buy downgraded corporate debt into the high yield market. I mean, absolutely just completely threw this market upside down. So, um, you know, we talk about too big to fail. And this is where I, I get a little bit more uh, you know, negative and pessimistic like some of my colleagues here. I mean, I, I think society fails when when you ultimately get into the dynamic that we're painting here. I think you know, fiat currencies uh, may be, you know, an endangered species at some point with this kind of activity. Having said that, uh, again, Healing in markets. What do you want to look for? Well, how about the Aussie dollar that's, that's up 14% in 15 days? That's a measure of, of China. It's a measure of reflation. It's a measure of, of commodities. How about Treasury uh, volatility, which is essentially flatlined over the last three or four days, certainly relative to where it was? How about the Japanese yen, which is also, again, a funding currency in this risk-on trade, which is basically back to six-month levels? Um, again, when, when the yen was rallying and looked like we were going to go to 80 uh, dollar yen, it was it was time to run for the hills. We're back to where we needed to go. So um, I'm looking at the, the retail market. If you look at the XRT ETF, which is at least measuring uh, the retail uh, sector, it's outperformed the S&P by 11 percent over the last four days. Um, the parts of the market uh, and again, they're obviously extensions of the parts of the economy that we needed to see uh, recover yeah. more was the, and were the most offsides of the ones that obviously have outperformed here.
When I saw Karen the moves today, I, I instantly thought about you. You know why? Because I know that you've said that you have been short a lot of high yield, but long the banks. Well, today I thought maybe Karen loves and hates this because high yield surged because the Fed basically bailed it out. But the banks also rose today. J.P. Morgan up, what, 8 percent? How did you read it? I mean, I read it. I don't know what to make, but love it and hate it. A lot of agita, net net, not that much change in the P&L. But I thought the Fed actions were just absolutely extraordinary today. They had to be. We're in extraordinary times. But um, it, to me, is it's sort of reminiscent of 2008 when we saw some other extraordinary actions. And I want to just talk about one of them that was the most interesting to me. In September, at the absolute, uh, Lehman had just failed and things were really coming undead. The, uh, the SEC actually said, you are no longer allowed to short financials, which was an extraordinary measure. And I think we have a chart that shows where the BKX index was right around September. And what happened in the two days following that, the BKX index was up 28% in two days, which is absolutely extraordinary, kind of the kind of reaction we're getting now. But then... As time went on and it became clear that, that those kinds of short-term policies weren't going to be enough, if we step back and look a few months later, the BKX actually traded down by almost 75%. So I'm not saying that's what's going to happen right now in the HYG, but I am saying this is an extraordinary yeah. move by the Fed. I don't think it necessarily means that they're giving you an at-the-money put. I do believe there's a put there somewhere, but I don't believe it's at-the-money. And a lot of this money that they talked about today is going to debt that is newly rated debt, newly rated junk, I'm sorry, that was investment grade before March 22nd and now will not be investment grade due to what's happened. That's where the focus is going to be. So it's obvious those, those kinds of securities traded really well. This, by, it's important to note, this is huge for the insurance companies. They are the largest holders of some of these. This is huge for them that there's a, a buyer of last resort here. But one other thing to a point that you have followed closely, which is the NAV versus the price of the HYG and some others. The Fed has said, even though they are going to buy ETFs, they are going to avoid buying ETFs that are trading at a premium to, they don't say how big of a premium, but at, at a premium to the NAV. So that premium really spiked in the last couple of days. I don't know if that means the Fed would no longer buy them right here. I'm not really sure. But the, the measure is huge. I just sort of think that this will not mean that, that companies can't fail. I, I have to say I don't agree with Steve that companies can't go bankrupt. I believe they can. I don't know that the Fed could save everyone. Yeah. But I do applaud them taking extraordinary measures because we are in extraordinary times. It certainly is. And some of these close-in funds that we've been talking about, the DSL, Double Line, PCI, a PIMCO, DHY of Credit Suisse, they all went up today. I'm going to get to our guest in a moment, but I do want to hit some OPEC headlines very quickly. We've been waiting all day for this OPEC Plus meeting to wrap up. There were reports of a deal a couple of hours ago. We did not report that. Well, apparently a statement is out now that there is some kind of a formalized deal. OPEC will cut 10 million barrels a day starting May 1st of this year, but only for two months. Then they cut 8 million barrels a day through the end of the year and 6 million barrels a day from the beginning of 2021 through April of 2022. A lot of these numbers were thrown out there today. The market didn't like it. Oil, by the way, did something it's only done three times in 30 years, and that has moved 20% in a day. It was up 12% at one point, 
down 9% for a 21% swing. It closed down there. We'll get more on oil. All right, let's go back to the markets. And really what we've just talked about is making financial history, folks. And I mean, for for awful reasons, obviously with COVID-19, we are rewriting a lot of history. Well, we rewrote financial history today as well with this latest program. So let's bring in somebody who has lived it, studies it, and knows more about it than almost everybody out there on the planet. That is Paul McCulley, formerly of PIMCO, now of Georgetown University. And Paul, without getting too much into the the Federal Reserve Act, Section 13.3, which basically is this jump ball, gives the Fed sort of semi-unlimited powers. In your view, did the Federal Reserve today, if credit controls equities and junk controls credit today, in a way, did the Federal Reserve bail out the U.S. stock market? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is is it's not just the Fed. What the Fed's doing is very much in concert with what Treasury and Congress are doing. Uh, So I would say the bank of Uncle Sam, we the people, our government, essentially ensured that our economy is a going concern, even though it's shut down. And believe me, I'll be the first to give a salute and a high five to the Fed. But I think it's important to recognize that this is a joint venture with Treasury and the Congress, because Congress has got to allocate the loss-absorbing capital for all of these SPVs that the Fed is creating, which then they can lever 10 to 1 with helicopter money. So it's a beautiful cooperation between the fiscal and monetary authorities, and the stock market thinks it's really cool, and I do too. Okay, SPV, special purpose vehicle. One of these other three-letter acronyms we haven't heard in 13 years. Now they're coming back, Paul. Let me ask it more directly. Do you believe that the the taxpayer, because we forget that TARP, the taxpayer made money on TARP. Do you believe that, that these programs, while spectacularly expensive now, will all or some ultimately pay for themselves? I think that will be the case in some of the facilities and others it won't be. In fact, the one that I'm focused on the most is the PPP liquidity facility, uh, which is the Paycheck Protection Program facility. And the Fed essentially said that they would take those loans originated by banks at face value as collateral into the special purpose vehicle. And we know categorically Congress plans to forgive those loans. So essentially that's one where the Fed will get losses, but they actually won't be the Fed losses. Uh, They will be absorbed by the Treasury. So this is very different uh, than the financial crisis where actually the Fed did make money. uh, But this one is designed to, quote, unquote, lose money on the PPP uh, facility, and that money is come from Congress. And if they need more, I will bet my last dollar Congress will appropriate more. Uh, the PPP is the essence uh, of getting uh, the economy going forward as a going concern and stop the cascading of bankruptcies that would happen in the absence of these programs. Yeah, because the PPP, again, for our viewers, and it's hard to keep track of, is designed more for the small and medium-sized businesses, that bank loans program that we have been talking about a lot. And, of course, separately, you've got all these backstops 
on bonds. I felt like today, and I don't know if this is needed or not, Paul, we have been, I have been critical of certain ETFs for about a year now in terms of market structure and liquidity concerns. Does the ETF have liquidity to match the underlying assets? Whatever. Did we get kind of a bailout of certain ETFs and ETF providers as well today, too, in your mind? There's no question that this thing has got moral hazard all over it because it is a very macro program, uh, and uh, there will be beneficiaries of it that we, we were to sit down and say, you know, should they be beneficiaries? The answer would be no. Um, so I, I think there, that will be an outcome. Uh, but the bottom line is they had to go macro, uh, and they did. And you like it. Paul McCulley, we appreciate having you on the program. We hope you have a great long weekend, Paul. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for your insight. Very valuable to time like right now. You take care, my friend. All right, Tim, I want to go back to you. I mean, th- this is something we've, we've talked about for a long time as far as concerns about certain liquidities here. In your view, did uh, parts of the ETF market and maybe ETF providers get a bailout today? Um, well, I mean, you know, by the way, love the professor, Paul McCulley, who was my economist at UBS back in the day. Um, look, I, I think if you look at what's going on in some of the ETF, some of the asset classes, especially with asset backs uh, and mortgage backs, and we'd heard about some of the large mutual fund companies. I don't need to name them, um, but they are household names that actually had some liquidity issues in a couple of their funds. I don't think the Fed is focused on that. Again, I think the Fed uh, is more focused on on credit, on the underlying credit, on the underlying things that make up those ETFs. Uh, and therefore, I think the run on liquidity for a fund provider is very different than the run of liquidity uh, for the underlying uh, names, in my view, even though ultimately the funds are the ones that are puking. Uh, they have to meet redemptions, and then therefore they have to puke out a bunch of these securities where there is no bid. But again, to me, the most important thing or the most dominant thing that happened today uh, was the Fed stepping down into junk and saying that they would actually be buying downgraded corporates and being willing to take them out. And that, that, that relieves so much stress uh, on the system. We'd already seen a fair amount of thaw in the high-grade market, uh, but taking this out of the high-yield market, even the specter of this, is what I yeah. think the Fed is focused on. And again, the, fo- the Fed, with their words, said forcefully uh, and, and creatively and whatever you know, other adverbs we used, um, those were the things that came to me from the Fed's statement today around what they did. Yeah, and what they did is they, they front-run some of these credit rating agencies. To Tim's point, what he's saying is that when we see this spate of downgrades of credit rating over the next couple of weeks and months, the Fed says, we got your back, junk bond market. Tim, great points there, as usual. All right, we have got a lot more to do here on CNBC's Fast Money, the final in a holiday shortened trading week. Remember, the markets, they are closed tomorrow, but CNBC, as always, open for business tonight at 7 o'clock, markets and turmoil special We got us, Jim, and then the special tonight. All right, sticking with us, looks like OPEC Plus has a deal. The oil markets, at least when it traded, did not like it. We'll talk more about that. And a company who says, what's oil? We're going to talk more about Tesla and what's going on there. Stick around. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about oil and OPEC for just a moment, shall we? Because OPEC Plus, meaning OPEC plus Russia and some other members, held a huge virtual meeting today. I mean, you saw shots. It was like a Zoom with like 40 different countries in there. And it looks like by the end of the day, despite some opposition by Mexico toward the end, reports are that there is a deal being reached. 10 million barrels a day being cut for a couple of months, 8 million barrels a day being cut for longer, and then 6 million barrels a day being cut for effectively 2021 through half of 2022. The market did not like the numbers at first. Look at WTI crude. And as we noted earlier, oil did something today. It's only done three times in 30 years. Moved 20% in a session intraday. We were up 12% at one point, down 9%. Look at that. We've done it twice in a month, Steve Grasso. The only other time we saw this kind of intraday volatility was oil was all the way back, basically when we all had a mullet, January 9th, 1991. But the oil stocks, they still rose today. Was that because the Fed or was because something else fundamentally? I think it was both. So the Fed, a lot of these companies have weaker balance sheets. So that was the arm of it that was going to be the bailout for them. But obviously everything is reliant on OPEC and the cuts. But that headline number, the 10 million barrels, it's not really going to be as high as that. And the dedicated players in the space feel as if OPEC was serious, they would have cut now and not waited till May 1st. That's number one. Number two, the Saudis are at an elevated level at current levels right now on output. So their cut is not going to be as big on a percentage basis as it really was if you go back just a, a few months ago where their output was realistically. So I do think it's a sell the news event. I don't, I, the bigger question is for crude, when does demand come back on? So you could have all the cuts in the world. If we don't get back to work and we don't start up the economy again, the demand side never comes back. That's the true variable that everyone is missing right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, listen, Karen, the pipeline companies, some of them are issuing force majeures, basically saying you may have a contract. We're not taking your oil. We got no room. The refiners, they're shutting down or cutting dramatically back because nobody is driving. Everybody's looking for a home for their oil. These stocks have been decimated. You're a value investor. Are you buying or would you look at any of the oil complex at all right now? No, not yet. I mean, I think, you know, as I said before, I do think there will be bankruptcies. Clearly, oil energy is, is probably right at the forefront of where those would be. I think, to Steve's point, it's demand as well, if not more, than supply. So, you know, you're half sort of pushing on a string. Okay, you have some supply cuts. Let's say, let's say, assume they all happen. Let's assume that's a given. I do think that you need demand back. And so I haven't, I haven't been near the space. Okay, well, so Guy, I want to go to you quickly because, Schlump, listen, in the services side, the ones who actually sort of get the work done as far as, you know, drilling and moving things around, there's not many big producers. They have consolidated or gone away. There's only a couple. There's Baker Hughes, there's Halliburton, there's Schlumberger of the mega caps. I know you've been positive on Schlumberger, obviously, before this happened. Is this, is this still a name that you would look at now? You know, I think Tim could probably speak more intelligently right now about SLB. I think it's a name that he's sort of been dabbling in. I'll go quickly, and I'm not trying to pull an audible on you, but one thing we have been talking about is the moves in some of these big cap integrated names. You know, Exxon went from basically 30 to 45 over the same course of time. Chevron went from 50 to 85. Both those stocks were lower today. So maybe to Steve's point, um, this, is the, this is the point where you start paring down gains in, if you have them in some of these big cap integrated names. And I find it, 
I still find it just fascinating that, you know, six months ago we wanted lower oil prices, now we want higher oil prices. To, to, to have those conversations in public, to me, there's, that's a di- very dangerous game we're playing that has to have consequences at some yeah. point. It certainly might. And listen, if, if if I got you guys confused on the Schlumberger, how could I not? The hair is so no, it's similar. All good. No, no, no. That I, you know, it's, it's easy just to kind of mix you guys up sometimes. You're both so handsome. Uh, Tim, what about SLB, Schlumberger, long term? Well, largest OFS uh, firm out there where the balance sheet is, is fine. Um, the question is on EPS and the question, you know, there is free cash flow there. Um, they actually report next Friday. I'll be watching that. That stock traded, uh, I think, you know, below 13. Uh, and, and that's, again, one of those cases where the most money is made uh, when things go from terrible to just bad. This is, this is an earnings uh, concern. Uh, this is essentially a uh, top line that's going to be down 10 to 15 percent. Um, but, you know, this is a company that will be here tomorrow, cutting edge of technology for the sector. Uh, and I think one of the best companies out there, certainly in that space, uh, you should own it here, is my view, uh, if you own it for the long term. All right, well said, guys. Appreciate that. All right, we've got a lot more to do here on CNBC's Fast Money. How about these numbers? Up 73%, up 63%, and up 60% this week. Those are the returns for three well-known retail stocks. We're going to lay out these incredible moves and whether the whole thing is just a head fake plus rare earths. We talk a lot about oil. What about renewables, electric cars, solar panels? Guess what? You need rare earth minerals to make those things. How bad is the supply chain right now? The founder of the Mountain Pass Mine, Jim Latinsky, will join us on just that. Coming up in a few minutes. Can't miss that. We're back right after this. Stick around. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money. The markets ended higher today. They ended higher for the week. The S&P 500 up about 12%. But that pales in comparison to the move on some of these retail names that have been beaten up. The numbers I gave you before the break, 72% gain this week. 63% 63% gain this week, 51 for Dix. Look at that. Kohl's, 73% gain in four trading days. Macy's up 36%. Tim Seymour, I, I know that makes some investors in these stocks who've been suffering and struggling happy. I get that. That's good. But is there any way to make sense of these moves at all? Well, you know, when we're talking about Macy's again, it's 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 at some level, it's a it's certainly with some of the other department stores, but Macy's particularly, it's a covenants review. 
Um, you, you have to make some assessments about same-store sales, and, and, and the things that we're not going to know are what the ever-important holiday season looks like for Macy's as we get into the fourth quarter, as we come out of all this, but, uh, or, or going deeper into this. But uh, I think the assessment on Macy's has been a, a credit story and a balance sheet story. Same-store sales, again, uh, will probably be down close to 15% this year. Um, J.P. Morgan just downgraded their EPS to 31 cents, down 31 cents a share. Um, It's throwing darts right now for a company that was beleaguered coming into this. But again, this was priced as if they were going out of business. uh, And I don't think that that's the case. I think there's also very real assets there. Yeah, and Karen, the the equity may be having a conversation, but it appears that the bonds are screaming something else. Yes, I I think that's right. And I always think the credit markets are smarter than the equity markets. And if you look at Macy's, there's a bond. I think we have a chart of it. This is paper that comes due in 2023, so not quite uh, three years from now, and it's trading at 70. It hardly bounced at all, certainly nothing remotely close to the bounce in the equity. And something trading at a you know, high teens yield, this is telling you there are very real concerns about Macy's as an ongoing business. Maybe it survives, but I mean, in the, in the dash for trash, I just think it's too risky. Sure, you could have a giant, you could have a giant run-up like we had in the last week, but I would much rather be in an equity a retailer like a Target whose bonds trade at par or north of par. It's not going to be up 36% in a week, but it's not uh, you know, uh, on the watch list for is it going to survive either. So that would be my way to play the retail space. All right, let's talk now about, a, I guess, a similarly beaten up space for similar reason, and that is concern about consumer. Of course, Steve Grasso, listen, the cruise lines... They've been hit for a number of reasons. I mean, it's a consumer story, but of course they had these horrific headlines as well related to coronavirus on cruise ships. Been hit hard, but look at these week-to-date performers showing our audience. Royal Caribbean up 65%, Carnival, the casinos win. We'll get to that with Guy in a second. I mean, Carnival selling, what, a debt at 12% this week? Hardly a vote of confidence, although the deal did get done. Any reason to take a chance with some of these cruise line stocks? Yeah, I I think there's a reason to take a chance, but behavior has changed. Even before coronavirus, Brian, these were hit with with a wall of worry always. There's always uh, capacity issues with them, how many ships, they overbuild ships. Then when you have the flu outbreak, no one wants to get on a ship. Forget about that. Now, Now times that by 10. I think you're looking at maybe possible bailouts for these companies. That's number one. Number two, Nomura put out a piece yesterday, uh, I believe, saying that they can survive near zero sales until Q1 2021. That takes a lot of the ambiguity and and, uh, dark zone off the desk for at least the immediate future. So you can dabble here. I think out three years is what what Nomura says. And they also say, go with the best brand. So these are down basically 70 to 80% year to date. Stick with Royal, stick with Norwegian. I'd stay away from CCL, Carnival. Okay, stick with the Royal, stick with the Norwegian. Guy Dami, I mean, I don't know if you know anybody that goes on cruises, but you think about people, a lot of people may go on cruises to gamble. <laughs> Maybe they want to stay away from cruises, but they still want to gamble. Maybe there's a long-term bullish case to be made for the casino companies. Yeah, and, you know, it's, we talked about casinos a couple weeks ago. We said if you're looking for, you know, I remember talking, we remember talking about saying, look, there's some signs of life here some green shoots and it might be coming in the form of casinos and wind went down to 43 if you recall rallied back to 75 came back off 
you know, now it's a $70 stock. I mean, I'm not saying it's going back to 100 anytime soon, and I think you trade these things, but the fact that these casinos seem to be getting their footing is encouraging. I think you trade them still. I think if win were to get back to 75, if you're in the name, you take profits and look for the next leg lower. But at least you're seeing um, some glimmers of hope in some of these casino names, and I think that's somewhat encouraging, Brian, for sure. All right, good, good stuff there. Thank you very much. Looking at the consumer, everybody. All right. Earnings season is nearly upon us, but this earnings season is going to be spectacularly different than any quarter maybe the country has ever had. At least going back to the financial crisis, there are some of the names. But what do you need to focus on on such a scary, weird time like we're in now? Mandy Zhu will join us as well. Plus, we'll talk about rarer supply chains. A lot more to do. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. A big interview on tonight's Mad Money with Jim Cramer, and that is Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. A very wide-ranging interview, but Jim specifically spoke to her about the Small Business Protection Program, the PPP. Here's a clip. We just don't want it to have to trickle down. We want some of it to be directly uh, for these small businesses. Rural America, Indian country, places like that which don't even have a loan with the bank, don't have a relationship. Right. And we have, we've said to the bank, we want you to know your borrow, want your borrow to know your bank. But if you don't, we still want you to be able to participate in this initiative. So that's what that's about. And I do think uh, that it was a, a small ask and plenty room uh, for a negotiation here. All right. Small part of Jim's wide-ranging interview with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. You can catch the whole thing tonight on Mad Money at 6 o'clock. All right. Coming up after the break, big week for Tesla and the option side of the market. Which way are people betting? We're going to find out as well. Plus, don't miss our special report tonight after Mad Money with Jim. Markets in turmoil, 7 o'clock tonight. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. We talk a lot about oil and energy on this program, certainly because I cover the space, but we also talk about renewables. And we need to go back and revisit an important story that we brought to you last year out at the Mountain Pass Mine in California. If you want to make electric cars, solar panels, you want to make hydro, wind, whatever it is, you need rare earth minerals. The Mountain Pass Mine, one of the first operating facilities to try to bring back some of that supply chain from China. We're joined now by the co-chairman of that Jim Latinsky, who we were out personally with a number of months ago. Jim, thanks for joining us. So much certainly has changed in the world. Hey, yeah. But how's the supply chain doing right now? Because this is a critical element to the U.S. economy long term. Absolutely. And so thanks, Brian. It's great to hear your voice again. And, and, and uh, you, you know, I think, first of all, my heart goes out to everybody affected by this terrible tragedy. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's nothing more important than life and death and family, and obviously this could be any of us impacted. We're all impacted, and, and that's the most important thing right now. When we get through the acute stage of this crisis, which will happen and hopefully soon, um, we have to recognize that um, the single point of failure in our supply chain, um, which, is, which is becoming so evident with the crisis we have in healthcare right now, um, extends across industry. And um, my concern and the thing that, you know, as you know, we've been uh, sort of very open and, and out front about this over the last couple of years as we've been trying to rebuild the rare supply chain in the U.S., is that as a country, we have this single point of failure. Right now, we have a life or death issue. That's certainly the most important thing. But when the acute stage of this crisis ends, this temporary unemployment that we have, hopefully everyone will be back in their jobs soon enough, um, is ultimately going to become a permanent situation 
if we don't recognize that um, slowly and methodically over time, uh, China is extracting our manufacturing and our advanced industries. And so our GDP longer term is at risk. And that's tens of millions of jobs in the country. No, it really, I mean, and Michael Dell said pretty much as much. People kind of dance around it, Jim, because it's a sensitive topic, right? They kind of use coded language like, we need to geographically diversify our supply chains because we're realizing medical equipment, pharmaceuticals, a lot of it's coming from China and that sometimes you can't get out. Are you guys up and running? And are you still able to help supply some of these makers of these, of these renewables that the economy yeah. is counting on long term? So we are up and running, and we are, we are producing 15% of the rare earth concentrate globally. And we are actually doing that profitably, even though the Chinese government taxes us via tariff and VAT nearly 40% of our revenue. So although we have 200 American heroes out there at Mountain Pass getting the job done, you know, we're pretty much under attack um, you know, by, by having to ship into China. We're ultimately working on a plan uh, that's underway where we're retrofitting our existing site, so we'll produce separated rare earths. But, Brian, here's the thing. When we do that and we are producing the rare earths, we will still not have solved the problem because ultimately, over the last 20 years, the Chinese have not just taken over the rare earth industry. They've taken over the magnet industry, which is what the rare earths go into. So when you look at your Tesla or you think about Apple, they're all buying their magnets, their rare earth magnets in China. So at MP Materials, our plan is we want to, you know, we want to ultimately solve the rare earth problem. But our, our plan, our mission is to restore the true supply chain to the United States of America which yeah. means we need to go continue to move downstream. You know, we certainly hope that industry will come. Um, and, you know, we hope that corporate America is held to account, too. You know, take as you, I saw you had a Tesla thing. You're about to talk Tesla. You know, they receive billions of dollars of subsidy, um, yet they buy their magnets in China. You know, at what point as a country, and I don't really think that this is too controversial. It's competitive. Um, but at what point as a country do we say, hey, our taxpayer dollars should not subsidize companies like Tesla and Apple that have brought their supply chains um, elsewhere. Uh, you know, certainly Wall Street and Silicon Valley have benefited. Clearly, we've had a few stimulus programs recently that, um, although money has gone to people, I think there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, where that stimulus yeah. is going. And, and I think we should have that discussion as a country, and we should think about the fact that I think Wall Street and Silicon Valley have disproportionately benefited. And I think as a country, we would be better off, and actually economically better off, by not making sort of the short-sighted supply chain choice of, in the short term, making stock prices go up by having supply chain overseas, but then encountering every five or ten years a major crisis where we realize that, you know, tens of millions of jobs are at stake because we've, we've, we've missed out on the bigger picture, longer-term strategic yeah. uh, situation. So if we can, hopefully in that, this that next... Is well okay. said. Yo, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, Jim, we, 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 we got to go there. No, I love it. Listen, it's well said, and here's the thing. It is. It's not controversial because that's the beginning of the conversation we're going to be having as a nation for the next years between trade wars and this. This is going to completely change the way that businesses look at sourcing. We just got to get through this, as you called it, right. acute period. Certainly well said. Jim, good luck to you and your team. I can't wait to visit you in person again out in Mountain Pass, California. Thank you. We're looking forward to hosting you, you and, 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 you know, we're, we'll keep doing our part. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Getting on, getting on a plane again. I actually... Can't believe it, but I can't wait. All right, let's talk about company that Jim just talked about, and that is Tesla. Some moves in the option market. Mike Coe, you're probably not going to comment on where batteries are made, but you can comment on Tesla options. 
Well, yeah, I mean, obviously we have to concern ourselves with supply chains. I think Jim is, you know, he's making some important points there, although I would also point out that the subsidies Tesla receives, well, you know, electric vehicles, they certainly have their place. Carbon credits and things like that also have their place. The options market was seeing some bullish activity in Tesla today. We did see more calls than puts trading at above average call volume. The trades that I was looking at that I found most interesting were purchases opening purchases of the April 600 calls, those were trading for about $12, and those expire a week from tomorrow. So buyers of those calls are betting that Tesla's going to be above that $600 strike price by at least the 12 bucks that they paid. That means that they're betting on an increase of 8% or more over the course of the next week. And implied volatility, the price of options in Tesla has gone up quite considerably. But, you know, this is an interesting situation because this is one of the stocks we can point to that's actually up on the year still, uh, even though it is well off of its highs from February. Yeah, well off its highs. Mike Coat, thank you very much. Steve Grasso, comment there, maybe on Tesla, the options, the stock, or what Jim was saying. I mean, should we end subsidies for companies who make all their, not Tesla doesn't make all their stuff in China, but you got his macro point. Yeah, I get his macro point. I do agree with the macro point. The stock specific is last sales, 571. Tesla is always about where people are positioning themselves, not about where the reality is. So the 100-day is basically at, 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 uh, at 535. The 50-day is at 646. We're trading somewhere between there. I would say you have room to where Mike is looking at to that 600-hour level. Short interest, pretty high still, and Tesla still defying the laws of gravity. Uh, defying the laws of gravity. Steve Grasso, thank you very much. All right. Coming up, we're going to talk about earnings season. Believe it or not, it's here, and it's going to be very different than any that we have seen in a long time. Credit Suisse's Mandy Zoo. Plus, what executives bought the most of their own stock? We bring it to you at the end of every trading week, and we're going to show you the five companies whose insiders pulled out their checkbooks and bought equity. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Let's bring in a special guest, Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse, chief derivatives strategist there. Mandy, it's a pleasure to have you on Fast Money again, although I can't wait till everybody's uh, back around the table with Melissa and the gang. So, Mandy, I'll start with you. Um, how relevant is, quote, earnings season going to be? If it, I mean, super important or not important at all, given what's going on? Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say what have been priced into the market coming round of earnings will be less important than normal. So what to keep in mind is that the upcoming, you know, first quarter earnings is most gonna, mostly going to cover a period before we enter a lockdown. So, you know, the informational value going forward um, is not going to be a lot, right? So I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. And so what are you watching then in your team, Mandy, most closely? Sure. I think what is really interesting in the derivatives market right now is, you know, with this bounce off of the lows, market up, you know, 20 plus percent, we're not seeing any upside chasing in the market. In fact, investors have been using this rally to add to downside hedges, you know, buying downside puts in the major indices like S&P, Russell 2000, et cetera, which to me is actually, you know, very notable because typically in these major market corrections, we do see a fair amount of upside uh, call buying as people come in to pick the bottom, that activity, that flow is completely absent. So to me, it signals a very high amount of skepticism that, you know, this rally can continue going forward. 
Okay, yeah. And, and I mean, what what is the biggest... There's so many risks, Mandy. I feel silly even asking this question. <laughs> What's the biggest risk right now? From, and we're talking, of course, we're talking about equity markets, what we do here on CNBC. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, I think what people are watching for, um, you know, the near-term data, everyone, I think, by this point recognizes is going to be absolutely horrific, whether you're talking about unemployment, GDP, you know, earnings, etc. I think what will really drive markets. You know, if you're looking for the next next leg higher, we really need to see constructive data coming from you know, either the underlying virus in terms of a peak in the infection rates or signs that, you know, we can get the economy back to normal faster than expected. Um, so I think that's, that's what everyone is watching, not so much the near-term data, because that's been, I would say, completely written off, uh, but more signs of, you know, the second half, what type of rebound, what kind of recovery are we going to get? Is it that V-shaped recovery or, you know, with some, you know, if you look at a lot of Asian economies going to lockdown, you know, I'm having more conversations, you know, with clients talking about, you know, a second wave of infection and a potential, you know, maybe a U-shaped or W-shaped recovery. So I think that's what most investors are really focusing on at this point. Yeah. All right, Mandy Zhu, Credit Suisse. Mandy, look forward to seeing you back on set soon. Thank you very much. All right, let's guys go around the horn and talk about the next week setup. Obviously, tomorrow, Guy Adami is a holiday long weekend for Easter and for Passover. And I'm wishing all of you and your families the best over what's been an, just an incredibly stressful time. Guy, what are you watching for most closely? Gold market. I mean, Newmont Mining's up 13.5% today, if you look at that. And we, we outlined a pretty bullish case mm-hmm. for banks a couple of weeks ago. I remember JP Morgan trading 84. And we said, even if you say book value went from 62 to 55, you're still looking to be able to pick up J.P. Morgan at 1.5 times price to tangible book levels you would have signed up for in spades. So I think, to me, banks yep. and gold. Tim, and the end of Lent, by the way, you can finally, we can raise a glass virtually together. It will be under control. Looking for the Easter Bunny. But I'm looking for retail sales on the macro front. Retail sales out Wednesday. Uh, China also has import and export numbers. But obviously earnings, uh, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, then LVS, and even Schlumberger. All very important. Karen? For me, it's what the banks say. It's not at all about what they're going to earn. I think that's completely in the rearview mirror. It's about what are they seeing and what actually happens to their balance sheets if they have forbearance on loans? Do those loans get marked down? So that gets to Guy's point of book value. How badly do they think book value is going to be yeah. hit? Watching that. And any, any testing news on expanding testing would be important. Yeah, that's huge. Steve Grasso, what are you looking at, buddy? Yeah, so I, I'm not interested in earnings yet, as the rest of the group is. I'm not interested in economic data yet. I'm interested in the human toll. So... I keep tuning in to the president's press conferences, to Governor Cuomo's press conferences. I want to see those death rates flatten out, and that's where you know we're out of the woods. That's, that's definitely what matters, and let's hope we get that over the weekend. Guy, Tim, Karen, Steve, best to you and your whole families for this Easter and Passover next couple of days. Thank you all very much. All right, what corporate executives bought the most of their own stock over the past week? This paper has the names on it for me. I will read you this paper on the Insider Buying Boom when we come back right after this. We wrap up every week with it. According to InsiderScore.com, the companies who bought their own stock the most, I mean, they're insiders, Kohl's, Children's Place, Apache, SAIC, and Carnival. Their executives coming in big. In fact, Carnival, a board member, bought 10 million shares. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. Mad with Jim starts now. Take care.
Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.